the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. Yesterday was the Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. And, you know, Christmas is a big deal and there are lots of wonderful holidays. But I have to tell you, it's not a holiday, but the Pastors Masters Golf Tournament, along with the uh, the Pastors Breakfast, are the two favorite events for me. We have an opportunity to hang out with your pastors and ministry leaders uh, for the morning. This year we were at Langdon Farms Golf uh, Golf Club and just had a great time in what was a much milder day than the day before it and really the day after it. Anyway, just thoroughly enjoyed at least making the effort to bless them and to express not just our appreciation, but yours as well as they enjoyed some time just playing golf together. So out of the studio yesterday, but back in for the remainder of this week. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation with John Rosensteel. He is the pastor at New Hope Church. He's also part of the Pastor PDX team. We'll be talking about Together PDX, which culminates in a worship event coming up this Sunday, 4 p.m. at the Portland Waterfront, celebrating God's goodness and reflecting back over a summer of wonderful prayer and service that doesn't end Uh, with this event, but it just sort of punctuates what is an ongoing ministry of churches coming together. And it's thrilling to know that there are pastors who are linking together for the sake of the gospel and for the uh, good of the city and others who are serving, others who are committed to prayer. And we're all invited to participate in various aspects of uh, this movement. Together PDX is what you can look for online for all of the important details as this ministry doesn't uh, end on Sunday, but it just, again, punctuates what is an ongoing work of God in our community. You know, we have quite a reputation across the country. When I travel and people find out that I'm from the Portland area, immediately they have that look in their eye like, oh, well, can anything good come out of Portland? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, There are people who are praying, who are sharing, who are serving, and we're going to worship together on Sunday as an expression of that ongoing work. So anyway, we'll talk with Pastor John Rosenstiel from New Hope Church, and we'll speak with someone each day this week um, about uh, Together PDX and the worship on the waterfront. So that's coming up later in the program. And Stu Epperson Sr. It may not be a name that means a lot to you, but if you are... Um, if you enjoy Christian broadcasting, Christian radio, conservative talk, Stu Eppertson has had a significant influence all across the country. He was one of the founders of the Salem Media Group. I'll tell you more about that. He has passed away at age 86. He's gone on, as the old saints used to say, has gone on to his reward. We'll tell you a little bit more about him that might give you a bit of understanding about this radio station and others that are part of the Salem Media Group. So all of that's coming up later in today's program. All right, we're going to start with uh, a little of, a little bit of the headlines. The court has cleared the way for an Illinois, the state of Illinois, to become the first state to eradicate cash bail. And there's a lot of concern about this. They are set to become the first state in the nation 
to eliminate cash bail after the Supreme Court in that state ruled that a landmark state law did not violate its constitution. That was the challenge. Well, a provision in the state's controversial Safety Act, it's SAFE and then the Letter T Act, was set to end cash bail on January 1st, but it was met with legal action from prosecutors and sheriffs in dozens of counties who said the law was unconstitutional, diminished public safety, and put law enforcement at risk. Well, it does all of that, but the court said, well, it's not unconstitutional. A uh, Kanaki uh, court judge ruled in December that the law was unconstitutional, which the state's highest court overturned today. So a lower court said, yes, it is unconstitutional. The higher court said no. Well, under the new law, judges will not require suspects charged with crimes to post bail in order to leave jail while they await trial. Suspects deemed a threat to the public or those who are likely to flee can still be required to remain in jail. The state Supreme Court's uh, ruling means the end to cash bail will make uh, will take effect rather across the state beginning September 18th. Other states have enacted reforms to abolish cash bail for many cases, but Illinois is expected to be the first to eliminate cash bail, according to the Chicago Sun-Time. Very controversial decision made by the high court in that state. In other news, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel announced Tuesday that she had filed criminal charges against 16 people who signed paperwork falsely claiming that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. It's the first time a state attorney general has charged so-called false electors who participated in a scheme to overturn President Biden's victory. Biden carried the Wolverine state by over 100,000 votes. The 16 people charged include high-profile Michigan Republicans like Mashawn Maddock, co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party, Kathy Burden, a national committee woman from Michigan for the RNC. Well, the 16 others, or the 14 others besides those two, allegedly met in the basement of the state's Republican Party headquarters. They signed multiple certificates claiming they were the duly elected and qualified electors for president and vice president of the United States for the state of Michigan, per NBC News report. Well, that was a lie, Nessel argued. They weren't the duly elected and qualified electors, and each of the defendants knew it. Well, according to Nessel, some of the electors attempted to deliver these false documents to the state Senate, but were turned away. The documents were later sent to the U.S. Senate and the National Archives with the intent that Vice President Pence would overturn the results of the election using the false electoral slate, as Nessel put it. Well, the fake electors are being charged with eight felony counts each, including forgery. The false electors' actions undermined the public's faith in the integrity of our election system and not only violated the spirit of the laws enshrining and defending our democracy, but the Constitutional Republic, but we believe also plainly violated the laws by which we administer our elections in Michigan and peaceably transfer power in America, Nessel said. Well, the Michigan Attorney General acted in the absence of federal charges being filed. Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford recently declined to pursue charges against fake electors in his state. Well, the announcement came on the same day that Trump claimed he received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith that he is a target of Smith's investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Well, on that note, former President Trump on Tuesday said that he received notice from the special counsel that he is a target in the criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Deranged Jack Smith, the prosecutor with Joe Biden's Department of Justice, sent a letter again. It was Sunday night 
stating that I am a target on the of the January 6th grand jury investigation and giving me a very short four days to report to the grand jury, which almost always means an arrest and indictment, Trump wrote in a post on Truth Social. He's already facing 37 felony counts as a result of Smith's separate investigation into the former president's alleged mishandling of classified documents. And those charges include willful retention of national defense information, conspiracy to obstruct justice, withholding a document or record, corruptly concealing a document or record, concealing a document in a federal investigation, scheme to conceal and making false statements and representations. And the drama continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a U.S. soldier has been detained in North Korea after crossing over the border into the country without permission during a tour of the Joint Security Area. Well, the U.S. citizen was visiting the border village of Pyongyang, or something very like that, in the 154-mile-long demilitarized zone that separates North and South Korea when the incident occurred, the United Nations Command said in a statement on Tuesday. The area, which is overseen by the North Korean government and the U.N. Command, is a popular tourist destination. A U.S. service member on a JSA orientation tour willfully and without authorization crossed the military demarcation line into the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. We believe he is currently in DPRK custody and are working with the KPA counterparts to resolve this incident. Colonel Isaac Taylor, public affairs, said in a statement, well, the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin reiterated uh, in the, the uh, statement that was made when asked about the detained soldier during a press conference at the conclusion of the Ukraine defense contract group meeting. I'm absolutely foremost concerned uh, about the welfare of our troop. And so we uh, will remain focused on that. this. And again, this will develop in the next several days and hours and we'll keep you posted. Well, two unnamed U.S. officials identified the soldier as private second class Travis King. Uh, King had been released from the South Korean uh, prison where he was being held at, on assault charges. He was also facing additional military disciplinary actions in the U.S., according to the report. He was escorted from the prison to the airport to catch a flight to Fort Bliss, Texas. However, King left the airport and joined a tour of Pyongyang, uh, where he uh, ran across the border into North Korea. Well, the incident comes years after Otto Warmbier uh, then a University of Virginia honor student was detained after he stole a propaganda banner from a hotel while visiting Pyongyang in January of 2016. He was charged with a hostile act against North Korea's government and was convicted less than two months after um, a one hour trial. He was not returned to the United States, you might recall, until June of 2017. He came back in a coma, died shortly after. North Korea claimed Warmbier died of botulism. But he showed no sign of the illness and an MRI showed extensive brain damage and signs that his brain was uh, starved of oxygen at some point. So we can pray for the safe return, even though this uh, young military man is facing charges here. It will be much uh, worse for him there if he is detained, one would assume. A unanimous federal appeals court recently upheld the right of a religious school to make employment decisions consistent with core religious beliefs. Now, you might think, why do you need a court to weigh in on that? Well, these days you do. A three-judge panel ruled that Ronselli High School under the Archdiocese of Indianapolis was entitled to the ministerial exception and was within its rights when it fired a guidance counselor who revealed she was in a same-sex marriage contrary to the school's biblical views on marriage. 
2019, the Catholic High School chose not to renew the contract for its co-director of guidance after she had notified the school the previous year that she was in the same-sex marriage, which ran contrary to her contract to uphold the school's mission that marriage is between one man and one woman. Well, shortly thereafter, the counselor sued the high school, contending that the school violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by firing her for being in a same-sex marriage. Well, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed that claim, stating the ministerial exception allows religious institutions to determine their own employment guidelines for employees whose jobs involve religious duties or ministry. The court wrote employment discrimination suits are barred when the employer is a religious group and the employee is one of the group's ministers. This is what has long been called the ministerial exception, as the Supreme Court explained, requiring a church to accept or retain an unwanted minister or punishing a church for failing to do so intrudes upon more than a mere employment decision. Such action interferes with the internal governments of the church, depriving the church of control over the selection of those who will personify its beliefs, end quote. Well, the court continued, in determining whether an employee served a religious role, we show uh, deference to the church. All arrows point one way. A religious school is entitled to limit its staff to people who will be role models by living the life prescribed by the faith. Well, the ruling marks the second time in a year this court has ruled in favor of Ron Sully, um High School. Also in 2018, the school declined to renew a different contract, a counselor's contract for the exact same reason. Notably, the Indiana Supreme Court in 22 also ruled in favor of another school in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, upholding the school's decision to terminate a teacher for violating his employment agreement and failing to uphold the school's religious teaching on same-sex marriage. Well, the Wagner Group's repositioning of forces in Belarus puts Russia in a position to quickly strike vital NATO targets near Poland and Lithuania, according to a former Russian army officer. Andrew Kartopolov, a Russian politician and former uh, colonel in the Russian military, told Russian state television that the private military company Wagner Group could strike the border region of Poland and Lithuania in a matter of hours from its new location in Belarus, according to a report from The Sun. It raises questions about just how uh, the relationship between Russia, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, and uh, the leader of this um, this Wagner group, uh, how close they actually are and, and what uh, contact they are in terms of coordinating efforts. Well, the Russian mercenary group's presence in Belarus comes after an apparent failed uprising by Wagner Group and its leader, Prigozhin, last month. As part of a deal with the Kremlin to end the uprising, Prigozhin agreed to uh, exile to Belarus, where Wagner fighters have begun joining him and have reportedly been helping train the country's military. Belarus, which has been aligned with Russian President Vladimir Putin on the war in Ukraine, sits at a strategically important crossroads of Europe, bordering NATO countries such as Poland, Lithuania and Latvia. In addition to Ukraine, that border includes the strategically important uh, corridor, a 60 mile strip of land along the border of Poland and Lithuania that sits between Belarus and the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad, home of to Russia's Baltic fleet. Should anything happen, we need this um, Suwalki Corridor very much, the uh, spokesman from the Russian military said during his TV appearance. A strike force based in Wagner's forces in Belarus is ready to take this corridor in a matter of hours. Now, Russia has never um, violated the borders of a um, NATO country. This would be the first. 
although a mercenary group, they would be acting in the best interest of the Russian government. So we don't know if this is an individual just speaking hypotheticals or if this was some sort of veiled warning about what might, what is likely to happen. In other news, Hollywood uh, faces absolute collapse if the strike um, is not dealt with by executives. That's what a former Paramount and 20th Century Fox CEO Barry Diller has. It's a warning for Hollywood. Settle the strike by September 1st or face an absolute collapse of the industry. During an appearance on CBS Face the Nation, Diller laid out his prediction for the entertainment industry if the actors and writers strike lasts longer than a few months. What will happen is if, in fact, it does get settled until it doesn't get settled until Christmas or so, then next year there's not going to be uh, many programs for anybody to watch. So you're going to see subscriptions get pulled, which is going to reduce the revenue of all these movie companies, television companies, the result of which is that there will be no programs. Now, that may or may not be a bad thing, but he goes on. And at just the t- at that time, uh, strike is, is settled um, that you want to get back up. There won't be enough money. I'm quoting, well, SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Union, joined the ongoing Writers Guild of America strike on Thursday after five weeks of negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers failed to produce a new contract. The WGA has been on strike since early May. A company's reliance on artificial intelligence to prevent sextortion scams uh, sets up an AI versus AI clash between criminals and good guys. Well, sextortion cases increased 322 percent between February of last year to February of this year, according to the FBI, which recently said there's been an additional significant uptick since April. Um, Innocent um, uh, beach pictures uh, or men's bare chested gym pictures can be twisted into sexually explicit AI generated deep fakes that are weaponized against panicked and embarrassed teens and preteens. Cases have resulted in an alarming number of suicides by victims, primarily males, but not all, experts say. But AI-powered tech can detect anything it considers sexually explicit and block it from uh, ever seeing the light of day. Yaron Litwin, who's executive of Canopy, developed AI software that blocks these types of images, even innocent bathing suit pictures from the beach, from ever being seen, uh, sent rather, out and alerts the parents. So this may be a a positive use of this new technology. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break, but we will continue to work our way through some of the day's headlines. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to let you know there are some great Christian concerts coming to the Portland area. First, Fish Fest with Newsboys, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Andrew Ripp, Blessing Offer, and Cochran and Company. That's coming up on August the 19th. <clears throat> Lauren Daigle at the Moda Center, <coughs> excuse me, November 16th. You can get your tickets at KPDQ. Dot com. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Also coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Dr. Greg Jans, Triumph Over Trauma. And uh, we'll hear from Pastor John Rosensteel. He's the pastor at New Hope Church. We'll be talking about Together PDX. I'm going to need to clear my throat here. i got a little something. Just give me a second. All right. Good as new. I hope. Anyway. 
Well, Sam Brenton, the embattled non-binary former senior Department of Energy official, was traveling on a taxpayer-funded business trip at the time of a high-profile baggage theft last year. Internal Biden administration documents show Brenton traveled in early July of last year to the Department of Energy-operated Nevada National Security Site near Las Vegas, according to the internal Department of Energy filings and expense reports obtained by the Functional Government Initiative. Brenton flew on a United Airlines flight from Washington, D.C. to Harry Reid International Airport in Vegas on the 20, or I should say on the 6th of July, 22, the document showed. Months later, in early December, Las Vegas prosecutors charged him with grand larceny of an item valued between $1,200 to $5,000. Police accused the, um, the Biden official of stealing a suitcase with a total estimated uh, worth of three thousand six hundred and seventy dollars at Harry Reid International Airport in July of uh, last year. The same day he traveled to Las Vegas on official Department of Energy business. Well, the stolen bag contained jewelry valued at seventeen hundred dollars, clothing worth eight hundred and fifty dollars and makeup valued at five hundred dollars. He ultimately escaped jail time in the grand larceny case after pleading no contest to the charges and waiving the right to a trial. He was ordered to pay three thousand six hundred seventy dollars and seventy four cents to the victim in the case and five hundred dollars in additional fees, including a criminal fine. And Clark County Judge Ann Zimmerman handed him a one hundred and eighty day suspended jail sentence, a sentence that doesn't need to be served and ordered him to stay out of trouble. He also escaped jail time in a separate case involving the theft of baggage worth $2,300 from a luggage carousel in Minneapolis, St. Paul, in September of this year and was arrested in May in relation to yet another baggage theft, this time stemming from a 2018 incident at the Washington, D.C. area, Reagan National Airport. I hope he gets the help he clearly needs. Former President Donald Trump praised Senator Tim Scott and said the 2024 candidate may be a good fit in the Trump uh, administration if he wins the White House. Trump made the comment during an appearance on Sunday Morning Futures with host Maria Bartiromo. He complimented some of the in the Republican primary field during the interview, saying he believed that many of his fellow candidates were talented people and hinted that he was already having thoughts about a potential running mate. Is there anyone on that stage you see as potential running mate as uh, your VP? Bartiromo asked, possibly. I mean, I think you have some good people on the stage. Actually, I think you have some very talented people. I've been impressed by some of them, he responded. Actually, a number of them called me up to, not to ask for permission, but sort of to ask for permission to say they'd like to do it. I assume he meant run. I'm not going to embarrass them by saying who, but no, I think you have good people. I think you have good potential cabinet members to actually do that. End quote. Well, it's softly presumptuous, but at least he respect some of those uh, members until he's on a debate stage and we'll see what actually comes out. In other news, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Dan Crenshaw, the Democrat and the Republican, one from New York, the other from Texas, are forming an unlikely alliance teaming up in a bid to allow troops access to psychedelic drugs. Psychedelics have shown so much promise, Ocasio-Cortez said of the uh, effort, according to a report from the New York Daily News. We desperately need the resources to treat PTSD, traumatic brain injury and depression. At least one in two PTSD patients cannot tolerate or do not respond adequately to existing treatments. 
The progressive lawmakers' comments come as the military and Department of Veterans Affairs grapples with the growth of post-traumatic stress disorder in the ranks, an ailment that has doubled among veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan compared to Vietnam-era veterans. According to the VA and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, over 450,000 combat veterans have suffered from a, some form of traumatic brain injury between 2000 and 2021. But uh, new data suggests that unorthodox treatments like uh, psychedelics help leading Crenshaw and Ocasio-Cortez to form an unlikely alliance. The duo targeted this year's National Defense Authorization Act to introduce their proposal, managing to uh, get a watered-down version of the bill they authored into the massive yearly legislation. Crenshaw said House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had promised the uh, lawmakers to get a comprehensive version of the bill, which will include funding and clinical trials in the legislation during meetings with the Senate to combine the two chambers version of the bill. John Kirby, coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council, said the Biden administration is working with the defense industry to increase the production of munitions as concerns grow that the nation's weapons supply is dwindling. We're working very closely with the defense industry to try to ramp up production, particularly for artillery shells, Kirby told Shannon Bream on Fox News Sunday. You saw that we gave some cluster munitions to Ukraine as the a bridging solution here while we ramp up production. We're having very, very strong conversations with the defense industry, and we believe that we'll be able to get there. Kirby was responding to a segment reporting that a Center for Strategic and International Studies report found replacing inventories for ammunition, such as the 150-155mm uh, shells, I'm sure there's another way to say that, could take between four to seven years. Replacing javelins could take up to eight years and stingers up to as uh, many as 18, according to the report. Kirby said replacing the munitions as the war in Ukraine continues and tensions rise in Taiwan is not a matter of funding. Uh, Kirby's uh, comments come after President Biden said on TV that the United States is low on 155 um, mm Artillery rounds. Uh, Biden made the remarks rather while defending his administration's move this summer to send cluster munitions to Ukraine as a transition period until the uh, more munitions are produced. Conservatives slammed the president on social media following the comment, while others um, facetiously said uh, they love when the president of America goes on CNN to tell everyone we're low on ammo. Well, Disney backtracked on its claim that photos showing Snow White's new accomplices, previously called the Seven Dwarfs, were fake. And what news uh, a news outlet said was a misunderstanding on its correction notice. Well, the Daily Mail published a story on Friday showing an inside look into Disney's live action production for the classic film. The outlet accused Disney of adapting the film's iconic characters into magical creatures to be politically correct. The Daily Beast reported how conservatives were upset about the photos from the movie, but a Disney spokesperson told them the photos were fake. Well, Disney said it was seeking a correction and disputed the authenticity of the images. However, Disney walked back their previous statement, verifying the photos were from their production but weren't official. Disney said it changed the dwarfs to avoid reinforcing stereotypes from the original animated film in a statement to Hollywood Reporter. We are taking a different approach with these seven characters and have been consulting with members of the dwarfism community. Disney shared in January of 22 that the seven dwarfs would be referred to as magical creatures to avoid reinforcing stereotypes after criticism of the original depictions by the Game of Thrones actor Peter Dinklage, who was uh, who has dwarfism. I'm surprised they stuck with Snow White. Uh, Who knows? That might be changing at some point. 
as well. Well, scientists have reportedly discovered the key to the fountain of youth, identifying a combination of drugs that can help reverse the aging process. Harvard researcher and professor Dr. David Sinclair shared that a team at the Harvard Medical School searched for three years to find molecules that reverse cellular aging and rejuvenate sentient human cells. Well, the team identified six chemical cocktails and potentially more that helped return people to more youthful states in less than a week. Studies on the optic nerve, brain tissue, kidney, and muscle have shown promising results with improved vision and extended lifespan in mice, and recently, in April of this year, improved vision in monkeys. Other scientists are well dismissing it as mostly hype and very, very preliminary. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. Just a reminder, coming up in our second hour, Dr. Greg Jans, Triumph Over Trauma, and we'll talk with Pastor John Rosenstiel. He is the pastor of New Hope Church. We'll be talking about uh, Together PDX, the worship gathering at the waterfront coming up this Sunday at four um, and uh, much more when that uh, conversation takes place in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, Dr. Gregory Jans and Pastor John Rosenstiel, pastor of New Hope Church. On He's also a part of the Pastor PDX team. We'll talk about Together PDX and the worship gathering this Sunday at 4 along Portland's waterfront. Earlier this summer, an advisor to the mayor of Maripol, Ukraine, posted that Russian tr- sailors, or rather soldiers, had seized the city's Ukrainian Christian Evangelical Church of the Holy Trinity. Well, after ruthlessly expelling the clergy, the staffer noted that as many as 30 troops remained in the building, at least in part because it provided a human shield for troops. The church is located just feet from occupied residential buildings. The takeover of a Christian church might seem strange at first. What threat could a church be filled with worshiping men, women and children pose to a modern army? But according to the Institute for the Study of War, this incident is part of a wider religious persecution campaign in occupied Ukraine. While it's been grossly underreported in the U.S. press, Russia has been waging a brutal campaign against Christians and religious minorities in Ukraine. According to the Institute for Religious Freedom, Nearly 500 religious buildings, theological institutions, and sacred places in Ukraine were destroyed, damaged, or looted by the Russian military since the war began. Russia has murdered at least 26 religious leaders while imprisoning and torturing many others. More are missing or unaccounted for. Russian soldiers frequently threaten evangelical Christians in Ukraine, labeling them as American spies and enemies of the Russian Orthodox people. One Russian soldier told an employee of a Christian institute in Ukraine, evangelical believers like you should be completely destroyed. A simple shooting will be too easy for you. You need to be buried alive, end quote. In September of last year, Russian soldiers detained a pastor in Russian-occupied Melitopol during a religious service. His crime, providing humanitarian aid to local residents who were displaced because of the war. On Easter Sunday of this year, the Russian military attacked a church in the city of Nikopol, injuring two civilians. Targeting uh, Targeted attacks like these constitute a gross violation of religious freedom and has led the ISW to declare Russia's behavior a cultural genocide campaign. The Russian Orthodox Church shares some of the blame for what's become, what's been happening, rather. Its leaders, including uh, Patriarch Kirill of, of Moscow, 
have blessed the war and have continuously fomented military brutality through militant rhetoric cloaked in religious language. Most Christians in Russia belong to the Russian Orthodox Church, which views the Orthodox Church of Ukraine as illegitimate. Krill and other ROC uh, leaders are betting on Russian President Vladimir Putin's invasion to preserve not only Russia's empire, but to expand the reach of the Russian Orthodox Church into the conquered territories. What makes the church an attractive soft target is uh, what it stands for in the hearts and the minds of the people. Religious symbols hold significant cultural and spiritual value for communities. So these attacks constitute a deliberate attack to undermine identity and heritage while demoralizing the targeted group. The Kremlin labels itself pro-Christian, of course, but the facts on the ground expose this as little more than propaganda. Religious freedom has seriously declined in Russia since the 90s. Protestants, Catholics, Muslims and others face fines and repercussions for illegal missionary activities under the uh, ambiguous laws and unclear laws. The U.S. State Department has designated Russia as a country of particular concern for engaging in continuous systematic violations of religious freedom. In other news, an 18-year-old military recruit forced to shower with biological males as part of the Biden administration's transgender policies is complaining about being placed in an extremely uncomfortable position. The report was first raised at a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on Tuesday. The girl is afraid to speak out for fear it will harm her career, Senator Mike Rounds told Fox News Digital in an interview. Her options were slim and included resigning from her early uh, early career position. It was believed um, raising the matter in a complaint could have harmful impacts on the new recruits military career. Well, according to um, uh, Senator Rounds, the military recruit 18 is complaining about being forced to sleep in between two individuals who were supposedly changing from male to female. The girl also has to shower with the individuals and reported significant distress about the matter. The individuals housed with the 18 year old had initiated chemical interventions to change genders, but without having reassignment surgery. They're fully intact, if you will. Under the definitions that uh, Biden's Department of Defense was using of what a woman vis-a-vis housing, etc., transgender individuals may be housed in female facilities even without having had a reassignment surgery. There are growing concerns about the U.S. military falling behind its recruitment goals. This year, the Army is expected to end up 15,000 recruits short. U.S. military chiefs continue to express concern that if recruiting numbers don't improve, the U.S. will not be able to face the next great power threat or deal with two conflicts at the same time, Russia and China. The House last week passed a defense policy bill that strongly encourages the Pentagon to use artificial intelligence to its advantage, but also requires defense officials to examine how America's defense security infrastructure may be vulnerable to artificial intelligence systems deployed by China, Russia and other adversaries. Representative Mark uh, Molinaro, a Republican out of New York, pushed to include language in the bill requiring an assessment of AI vulnerabilities and watched it pass easily on the House floor. That's a strong sign the language will remain in the final bill, even after a, a negotiation with the Senate. Um, uh, it is believed the average person knows at least the rudimentary use of AI. China, terrorists, Russia are using AI in a much more sophisticated way, certainly as aggressors 
He told Fox News Digital, the Department of Defense has to catch up. We have to, as a government, advance ourselves in an effective way to protect the American people. And we know that AI is the next platform of military interaction that can be weaponized. His amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, requires the, Nas- the Department of Defense rather to identify potential vulnerabilities in the military systems and infrastructure of the United States that could be exploited by adversarial artificial intelligence applications used by China, Russia, and others. Financier George Soros and his son Alex provided maximum donations to President Biden's campaign during the second quarter filing show. The father and son duo each cut $6,600 checks to Biden's reelection committee on June 30th, according to its recently released records. The cash represents their first uh, jump into the 24 presidential election. Neither has given money to Biden's victory fund so far this cycle, which carries astronomical contribution limits, though that will presumably change as the election draws closer. Both George and Alex Soros will likely provide considerable amounts directly to the uh, president's reelection efforts and support outside Super PACs backing his candidacy after helping to propel him during the 2020 elections. During the last presidential race, Alex Soros provided the Biden Victory Fund with over $720,000, while George Soros added more than $500,000 to the committee's coffers. The two also maxed out donations to Biden's campaign that election cycle. New legislation proposed in the House would remove the words husband and wife from federal law and replace them with a range of terms such as spouse. The uh, amend the Code for Marriage Equity Act introduced by California Democrat Julia Brownlee seeks to amend a number of existing laws by striking the terms husband and wife from their text. The proposed legislation moves to substitute the words with phrases such as a married couple, married person, person who has been but is no longer married to, uh, depending on the context. Federal laws targeted uh, for amendment in Brownlee's uh, bill include the Ethics in Government Act of 1978, the Family and Medical Leave Act of 93, and the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, among others. Let's see, what do I have time for before we go to break? Well, I'll just mention what happened on this day in history. A.D. 64, the Great Fire of Rome begins, consuming most of the city for about a week. 1940, the Democratic National Convention at Chicago Stadium nominates President Franklin Roosevelt, who is monitoring the proceedings at the White House for an unprecedented third term in office. Earlier in the day, wife Eleanor Roosevelt speaks to the convention, becoming the first presidential spouse not wife, but spouse, to the convention, becoming the first uh, to address such a gathering. 1947, Harry S. Truman signs a Presidential Succession Act, which places the Speaker of the House and Senate President pro tempore next in line of the succession after the Vice President. 1969, U.S. Senator Edward Kennedy leaves a party at Chappaquiddick Island near Martha's Vineyard with Mary Jo Kopechny. Sometime later, his car goes off the bridge into the water. Kennedy is able to escape, but Kopechny drowns. The scandal would dog Kennedy the rest of his life. 1985, the world gets its first look at the wreckage of the RMS Titanic resting on the ocean floor as videotape of the British luxury liner, which sank in 1912, is released by the Wood Hole Oceanographic Institution. 2009, the Taliban posts a video of an American soldier who'd gone missing on the 30th of June 2009 from his base in eastern Afghanistan and was later confirmed to have been captured. In the recording, the soldier later identified as a uh, private um, first-class boat, Bergdahl, says he was scared 
I won't be able to go home. And finally, on this day in history, 2013, Detroit becomes the biggest U.S. city to file for bankruptcy. Well, coming up on the second hour, a classic interview with Dr. Greg Jantz, Triumph Over Trauma, and a brief conversation with Pastor John Rosensteel, pastor of New Hope Church. We'll be talking about Together PDX and the worship gathering on the Portland waterfront this Sunday, 4 p.m. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, trauma is usually thought of as a dramatic event such as sexual assault, domestic violence, combat, school shooting, or childhood abuse. But more commonly, according to my next guest, but no less devastating, trauma is caused by events like divorce, the death of a spouse, a miscarriage, or getting laid off from a job. Well, the COVID-19 pandemic brought two years of unexpected trauma to millions of people through prolonged sickness, sudden job loss, financial crisis, loss of loved ones, relapse into substance abuse and, and more. The after effects, depression, anxiety, addiction, panic attacks, insomnia and more can affect people for years and even a lifetime. The pandemic sparked a 25 percent increase in anxiety and depression worldwide, according to the World Health Organization. Well, my next guest has written a book to help triumph over trauma, find healing and wholeness from past pain. Dr. Gregory Jantz is a popular speaker and award-winning author of many books, including Healing the Scars of Emotional Abuse, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, and Overcoming Anxiety, Worry, and Fear. He's the founder of The Center, A Place of Hope in Washington State, and he joins us today to talk about his latest book. Dr. Jantz, thank you so much for joining us. Well, good to be with you today, and it is an interesting and tough topic, both. It really is. I was thinking about events that just unfolded today uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a traumatic event, even from a distance, to watch what happened there, to consider what happened in Colorado with shootings in a school. There's so much going on around the world that we find ourselves in a swirl of events that can, I would imagine, um, cause us to feel a sense of anxiety and fear and all of those things that you write about. You know, that's the thing. It's anticipatory anxiety. It's out there. We're anticipating the next bad thing. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is the next bad thing. It's like, no, 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 we, we can't do another school shooting. You think about this, you go, are you kidding? And so that's repeated traumatic events is really what we're talking about. And they come in different forms. Well, you perhaps have answered the question, but talk a bit about why this book is so relevant today. We mentioned an event that unfolded earlier today, but there have been over the last couple of years a number of things that uh, have left many of us feel feeling traumatized. Yes, and unfortunately, what's happened is, you know, from COVID, pandemic, um, there was just people end up doom scrolling. It's like always there was something bad going to happen. And we were traumatized. Our kids were traumatized. Uh, Year 2021, we had the highest academic failure on record. And you look at this, you go, wow, what is going on? Um, And our kids are suffering. Right now, ages 10 to 17, suicide is the second leading cause of death. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at these things, it is traumatic. And we look, some of us have lost a loved one. Uh, 
there is so much going on and the stress, the chronic stress in our families. And so really what we're talking about here is how do I manage trauma in my life and keep my thinking, you know, sound, keep my thinking clear because it's a lot. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Now, you you may have touched on this, but I just want to give you an opportunity to speak specifically. What is trauma? We tend to think of it as a, a physical wound, but what you're describing is something beyond that. It certainly can include physical wounding, but there's more to it, or there can be. Yes, and there is emotional traumas. If you grew up uh, at home and maybe there was a lot of comparisons. Why can't you be more like your sister? Look at her. You know, and, and that was a repeated theme. Over time, that's traumatic because it begins to shape who you are and how you feel about yourself. Uh, if you were in any way a, a victim of abuse, physical abuse or sexual abuse, guess what? That's really, really traumatic and something that is ongoing, uh, and what that does to us and the developing brain. And so we're experiencing traumatic events, uh, and it overwhelms our system because there's no place to put this. It's, the trauma is so uh, shocking, it's so, if you will, wrong, that there's no place to put it. And now there could be trauma that came from a, uh, maybe it was a disaster or a, uh, somebody's sudden death, and we we don't know what to do with that. And we're particularly sensitive if you've already struggled with depression or you've su- suffered from anxiety growing up, and then you experience traumatic events. You know that's really what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Can you um, talk a bit about uh, the three healing keys for trauma? things that we need to know as we're moving toward healing and restoration. Oh, absolutely. You think about what do I need to know in order to heal? Well, first of all, a key is I have to really deal with reality. I have to understand the effects this had on me. I have to also understand that it's, it's going to take some work and I, I need to have help. I, I don't heal in isolation. I don't heal alone. And one of the steps that we have to figure out is, how am I going to do forgiveness? How am I going to do forgiveness um, of myself or others or forgiveness of the situation? Too often when there's trauma, we carry around deep, deep wounds that turn into uh, resentment, turns into bitterness. And that's really what we've got to figure out. How do we, how do we deal with this? And if we don't, uh, we're more prone towards addiction and developing addictions. If I've got uh, a compulsive behavior, if I have unresolved bitterness, resentment, unresolved hurt in my life. What role does a person's faith play in the healing of of trauma? Our tendency might be you just kind of need to get over it. Uh, Is there a role to be played that our faith can help us in this journey? Yes. And and here's what I hear people say. They go, this was so hard, and I'm still walking through this. But my faith and understanding that God loves me, and to be able to receive that love, I don't have answers for what happened to me, 
but to know that I am loved and my faith is what's carried me through for the long run. I hear people describe that. You write about um, 10 truths about trauma uh, that you discuss in the book. Can you share a couple of them? What are these truths about trauma that will help us to, first of all, better understand what we're experiencing so that we can prepare to move past? Well, one is that traumatic things can happen to any of us. We just And, and we all will have our turn with something. And, uh, you know, we've all experienced, at times, tragic things. And so uh, nobody's immune from, from trauma. And I would say that... Um, Trauma affects us in different ways. It's always real. Our experience of it is always real. As you think about uh, trauma and you go, well, that was no big deal. But, you know, for the person that might have grown up for a lot of emotion, with a lot of emotional abuse or they had a loved one who was uh, maybe they were shot and killed and they heard about a, a school shooting today, that's traumatic. So uh, we all... It's real for us, and we all experience it a little bit different. Um, I think, too, one of the other ones is people tend to uh, think, well, over time I'll just get better. You know, time will help it heal. Uh, And time is not enough to heal trauma. Well, that's such an important important point. Yeah, yeah, because I think we do assume the farther we're away from the event, uh, then the better off we will be. Yes, yes. Yep. So are there among these 10 truths that are uh, important to understanding trauma, is there one that stands out? Where Where should one begin? You know, I think we need, want to always have somebody who's trusted. I want us to have somebody that is uh, trusted and... Um, that can walk us through. I want you to have a good uh, counselor that knows what they're doing with trauma. Um, I think too often we we just say, I can handle this, and we try to do it all on our own. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, and I, and to be in the hands of a good counselor who really understands this, oh, I can tell you, it's just so much better to really be in the hands of an expert. Mm-hmm. Um, trauma isn't just something that we experience emotionally, but it also has an impact on the body. And that may be surprising. You may not link uh, the impact of trauma to a traumatic experience. But can you talk a bit about how it doesn't just uh, challenge us in our thinking and how we conduct ourselves, but it has a it can have a physical um, impact as well? Okay, trauma can affect depending on the age. It certainly can affect brain development, depending upon um, the repeated traumas. So our brain is, you know, when we're young, it's developing, it's growing. If it's uh, traumatized uh, by even emotional trauma, it alters brain chemistry. We know that over time, trauma can affect uh, our immune system and our immune immunities. So that's important to know. And those are um, we, significant. Go, please go ahead. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're more prone to disease and sickness. We're also more prone to having sleep disorders. 
and not um, not having what we call restorative sleep. So mm. those are just a couple of things. Yeah, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Greg Jans. His book, Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. The book is published by Ravel and is currently available. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Dr. Greg Jans. He is the author of Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. If you want to better understand the nature of trauma in an effort to identify, is this an experience I'm having and what impact is it likely to have on me physically and emotionally? This is a great resource to help better understand what that is all about. Now, what are some of the practical ways, Dr. Jans, that we can rewire our brains after trauma? You were talking a bit about that just before the break. Yes. When I think about rewiring our brains, that's literally what happens. There is a rewiring, and it is our body, as it recovers, uh, creates what we call new neural pathways. It creates a rebalance of body chemi- or brain chemistries, dopamine, dopamine, serotonin. Those are important chemicals. So uh, there's things that we can do to help our brain, and our brain is amazingly resilient. Mm-hmm. And so we know that even certain nutrients will help our brain. Um, and so a big part of caring for trauma, it's not the only part, but a big part is Recaring for our brain. Our brain has been, uh, it's like the circuits have been blown in our brain with trauma. So how do you do that? I mean, I'm sure there's more than one thing you do to accomplish that, but yeah. how do you go about it? Well, one of the things is the power of, as you work through dealing with the reality, as the power of, of forgiveness over an event as that begins, uh, as we begin to allow the brain to have restorative sleep and rest. Um, Even people with trauma forget to drink water. And so nourishing the brain with water, it sounds so simple, but it's so powerful. Uh, We always want to look and see, do we have inadequate vitamin D? As our brain, uh, there's uh, uh, what we call the fish oils, the omega-3s, is so important for brain health. We also want to look at how is our thyroid, how is our hormonal uh, balance in our life. or uh, And so those are all key components to helping the body restore. And again, we're talking about the book where you'll find this information, Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. In one chapter, you uh, it's called uh, Revise Your Script. Explain how you can do that after trauma. Okay. Well, really what we're talking about is, um, we're talking about how you've seen yourself, how you've perceived your future because of trauma. Uh, sometimes we we develop shame and we feel like, wow, I don't deserve uh, anything good. And you kind of end up living that way. And, or you sometimes with trauma, you can end up blaming yourself and blaming yourself uh is such that um, you, you get stuck and you get stuck in uh, repetitive relationships um, and, or harmful relationships, I should say. So as we rewrite the script, 
it's like we have to learn how to re-envision a different future. We have to learn how, how am I going to uh, think differently about myself? Um, how am I going to really come to the place that, you know, my past does not have to define my future. That's a real important key. You write about uh, hope. It's a common thread throughout your throughout your book. How important is uh, hope to healing? You know, when I think about the word hope, hope tends to come for us when we have a plan. And the plan is... Um, the plan is, how am I going to rebuild my life? How am I going to get the help I really need? How am I going to care and do the nutrition for my life? It is such that hope comes when I have somebody helping me with a plan. It's vital. Uh, otherwise, I can feel helpless and hopeless. Mm-hmm. Is it always important to have someone else with whom you're sharing that plan as you're moving in a more hopeful direction? Yes, we need. We can't do this alone. We need help. Uh, we need help to do this. And when we isolate, uh, we will tend to really default on our thinking. What is post-traumatic growth? We hear a lot about post-traumatic stress, but what is post-traumatic growth? And can uh, is it something that one should expect if you're following? what you've written about in, uh, in your book, Triumph Over Trauma. It is the belief and it's knowing that post-injury, post-trauma, I can grow. Post-trauma, not only do I grow, um, but I have a plan for my physical growth, my spiritual growth. I have a plan for my emotional growth. I am setting myself on a course of growth. And that's what we do uh, when we are working through this. We start to see hope for our futures. And also when traumatic events happen in the future, we're able to manage those and manage the emotions of those without it uh, really sinking us. What I mean is it's still very difficult. It's very difficult to hear about something traumatic. But you're able to keep uh, really yourself in the right frame of mind, even though I'm dealing with some difficult emotions. I know that um, for for your readers, um, you have a, a, a an idea that they're going to walk away with certain capacities that they didn't have before. What do you hope your readers will take away from uh, reading and applying the principles in this book. And I should mention it's intended to be very practical, that at the end of every chapter you have practical questions and tools to help the reader move forward. What is your goal in writing, and what do you hope your readers will walk away with? Yes, my hopes are really uh, that you will know that there is a different future for you that there is a, a plan that God has that is good, um, that you can walk alongside very traumatic events with, with the right people, and you can, in many ways, it's hard to imagine, but you can be strengthened, and you will turn around, and you will be a help and a resource to others. Where can our listeners uh, find a copy of Triumph Over Trauma? 
Well, I would imagine at your favorite online retailer, whatever it may be, and uh, christianbook.com. It should be available everywhere. All right. Again, the title of the book, Triumph Over Trauma, Finding Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. And we've had plenty of that. Uh, The healing process, however, we need some help. So I appreciate your uh, coming to talk with us about it and for making the book available to walk us through that process. Yeah, absolutely. And there really, truly is hope. Thank you so much. Again, Dr. Greg uh, Jantz is the author of Triumph Over Trauma, Find Healing and Wholeness from Past Pain. He's also the uh, founder of The Center, A Place of Hope in Washington State. You can learn more at drgregoryjantz.com. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As you probably know, this has been a summer of prayer, of sharing, of serving, and it will culminate in an opportunity to come together and worship. I'm talking, of course, about Together PDX 2023. Here to talk with us about uh, the culmination of all of this and what's been going on this summer and beyond is the uh, pastor of New Hope Church, John Rosenstiel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Georgine. Nice to hear your voice. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate that you have a lot going on as a pastor of a a thriving church. But let me ask you, from a pastoral perspective, why is it important for the churches in the Portland metro area? And I'm talking about all the way to Vancouver and across uh, this whole um, section of the, the state of Oregon. Why is it important for pastoral leaders and the body of Christ to come together for worship, for prayer, and to serve the city? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my simple answer would be two words. We're, we're better together, which I guess can, can sound trite. I don't mean it to. Uh, I've come to realize that's, that's true. And I, I think as a pastor, I've been a pastor for, oh boy, a long time, 30 years or so. Um, it's a busy job. It's a demanding job. And, uh, we have responsibilities to the local expression of the church, uh, with whom we work, you know, uh, and there's maybe, a thousand of so churches in the greater metro area and uh, and it's easy to just get kind of focused on your church mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's an important role but uh, i think as i study scripture and stand back from it and have done a lot of thinking over these last couple of years i think the right way to think about church is beyond the local expression to the the unified church in the greater metro area you know i think of the letters in the beginning of revelation that jesus Christ to the churches he's writing those churches to the to the churches in those cities so i think if, if the spirit of god jesus were going to speak to the church in portland wouldn't be to one specific church located in one specific building like new hope it would be to the collective uh, church of portland and so i think that you know that unlocks some stuff in me and, and then i think you know we are truly better together every uh church has its strengths and has its weaknesses uh, but together, as the Church of Portland, uh, we can fully embody the good news of Jesus. You know, it's it's exciting to consider. We live in a time when communication is unprecedented. I mean, we can communicate in ways that uh, previous generations could not have imagined. So we have access to one another, and uh, yet we tend to be more insular than than we ought. We take seriously that the Scripture says that we are members one of another, but don't necessarily know how we can express that in a way that's constructive. Together, PDX has provided for us a framework 
um, that invites the body of Christ to love one another so that they know that we uh, are, have been with Christ, but also to minister outward to the broader community. We've been talking about this summer, but really Together PDX extends beyond uh, what's happening and what will happen uh, this summer uh, beyond uh, these hot months into the rest of the year. This is an ongoing um, undertaking. Yeah, for sure it is. We, uh, you know, I've been involved in it for uh, the last uh, maybe four or five years. Uh, I serve now on the oversight team for Together PDX, mm-hmm. but it really has been a very organic, and I, I like to thank the Spirit of God as the architect of the movement. Um, but as you probably know better than I, because you've been around uh, the city for quite a while, uh, the the Collective Church of Portland has done many things uh, over the course of the last uh, 15 years or so, and it's ebbed and flow, and COVID threw a wrench into things. Uh, Kevin Flowers played a huge role in the Flowers Association, bringing uh, leadership amongst the churches. And so, you know, we kind of bonded together, a lot of us during COVID and missionally, and uh, we had our uh, some successes in some areas, and then things would fall away. And, and we kind of came together and said, hey, we need to kind of unofficially come together and form this organization for the good of the city that we truly are better together. So Together PDX, and if, if, if listeners are interested, they could just go to togetherpdx.org. There's a ton of great information. Um, the website's uh, wonderful. Uh, but we have uh, kind of four branches of it, uh, Pastors PDX, Prayer PDX, Share PDX, and Serve PDX. And a Serve P- PDX is embodying uh, justice endeavors throughout the city, partnering with organizations in the city doing good. And one of our focuses this summer together uh, alongside Worship in the Waterfront is uh, serving our uh, houselessness mm-hmm. issue and coming along our unhoused neighbors. Um, Share PDX is, is sharing the, the good news evangelistically uh, with our bodies, with our mouths uh, that we're, we're called to do as followers of Jesus. Prayer PDX, there's just been an incredible movement of prayer throughout the city. I can't, we don't have time to discuss all the really cool things that are going on, uh, but we've been praying as churches uh, working up to worship on the waterfront. And there's ongoing things. There's there's a plethora of resources on the website. And then I've been most involved in Pastors PDX. And that's just in my own journey. Um, it's hard. It's, in it, you know, uh, marriage struggles and health struggles. I almost had a heart attack at one point, right? Doing ministry is really, really difficult. And us pastors, we have the proclivity to kind of go it alone at some point. So mm-hmm. we kind of said, that's not good. And, you know, Jesus doesn't call us to shepherd the sheep and then literally die, you know, in, in the midst of it. And so uh, we, we want to support pastors. We want pastors to be healthy spiritually and emotionally, have, have healthy marriages if they're married, uh, be healthy parents, uh, have space to encounter God and live out the faith uh, in their in their own lives so they can have integrity as they shepherd others. So there's a ton of stuff on the website about things that we do to offer uh, to pastors uh, so that no pastor in the city uh, walks alone. So I think um, it's been just a gift uh, for me to receive from pastors and points in my life in ministry where I'm kind of down for the count and I need people to rally around me and, 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 and then you can return it by coming alongside others uh, that are in, in tough points of the journey. So it really is a really beautiful organization. It's organic. We literally have one person we pay part-time. Everything else is just pastors volunteering their time. And I think that in and of itself is beautiful. Oh, absolutely. We have lived through a season of isolation, and I think a lot of people still feel disconnected. We're part of a local church. It may be a smaller or a larger church, but we have an opportunity as the, the body of Christ at large 
uh, to come together for the sake of the gospel and minister to the, the broader community and to one another, as you've described. We're talking about Together PDX, and it will all culminate uh, on Sunday evening, the 23rd of this month, 4 p.m. at the Portland Waterfront. We're going to celebrate his goodness. Worship will be led by local worship leaders coming together from various churches across the Portland metro area, along with special guest Matt Redman. Uh, and again, this is just a celebration and an opportunity for us to to worship the one in whom we have put our trust and will carry us through to live faithfully uh, before him and to serve our community well. And together, PDX has provided a, a way for us to do that, to connect that as you've Uh, use the word in an organic way. There's not an individual that's being elevated. There's not a a cause that that um, outstrips anything else. We are coming together for the sake of the gospel to to live out the Great Commission as uh, as the Scripture uh, intends, as Jesus intended for us. And I'm so grateful for the the leaders in this movement who have come together for the the sheer sake of encouraging one another and uh, being faithful to... uh, to live up to the, the gospel challenge. And you are certainly among them. Uh, what are you looking forward to most with this uh, worship event coming up on Sunday at four? Yeah. Um, you, well, you captured it really well. You envisioned it well. I, uh, I think, you know, there are some, some folks in, in Christendom, depending on uh, uh, how you grew up, uh, kind of like the big event spectacle uh, for lack of a better term. And there's nothing wrong with that for sure. Um, others are hesitant, right? <laughs> Increasingly kind of skeptical of what's going on there. What are you trying to sell me? And, mm-hmm. and I promise as somebody behind the scenes, um, it is very organic and it's, it's not one person or not. It, it, it's, it's not about fame of any human. It's not about performance. Uh, we just felt it was time coming out of a, a season that uh, the world has kind of been down for the count and a little divided and, and that's crept into the church uh, for the church to come together in an embodied way. Um, you know, the, the Old Testament prophets, if you were to ask them, um, envision heaven, for lack of a term, they would have, they would have, they would have understood it as the kingdom of God, envision the kingdom of God one day. Where, where are we all headed? Where, where's this, where's this whole project of Jesus taking us? They would say a feast. That's what they would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in, in the New Testament, you see that interpreted in Jesus' table scenes and he, in a lot of his parables, the wedding feast. And the people of his day understood that. That's how they understood it as well. I think that's a beautiful image. And then in Revelation, this line uh, that at the wedding feast, uh, it'll be a group of, 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 of people from every nation and language and tribe. That line is repeated, I think, seven times for emphasis. And it's this idea, you know, a lot of times in our local expression, the church in New Hope would be like this too, you know, whatever denomination, whatever, you're going to have a slant a certain way, right? You'll, you'll look around and people often think like you and dress like you and look like you maybe. And there's nothing you know, horrible about that. But I think we're ill prepared for the kingdom of God mm-hmm. in that instance. And so coming together with the broader church of Portland, um, the diversity that is going to be on display uh, across every descriptor is going to be so beautiful. And I cannot wait. I think it really will be uh, a little taste yes. of what's coming. <laughs> Absolutely. A little taste. You know, we'll have food carts there, right? So we'll literally be feasting and we'll be eating and we'll be worshiping and we'll be praying and we'll be hearing scripture. And I think I'm just personally as a follower of Jesus, so looking forward to it. 
And I just want to encourage any of the listeners that may be hesitant for whatever reason. There's no agenda. Uh, it's very organic. We want Jesus to be lifted high, and we want to embody the good news and just come together as the people of God and kind of practice, if you will, for this great wedding feast of the Lamb that we'll be at uh, in short order. Amen. Again, that's coming up this Sunday, 4 p.m. at the Portland Waterfront. You can celebrate His goodness. Again, local worship leaders from a variety of churches across Portland. Matt Redman will be there, and we're just going to worship and celebrate the Lord. Uh, Pastor Rosensteel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Hey, th- thanks for your time, and I really appreciate you um, investing in the Church of Portland. I, I know that you care about it, and I'm and, uh, and deeply grateful. So I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. When I returned to the office uh, today after the Pastors Masters Golf Tournament yesterday, I was met with an email from the CEO of Salem Media Group, and it simply read, It is with heavy heart that I share the news today of the passing of one of our two co-founders, Stuart Epperson Sr. Though Stuart has been battling leukemia for the past few years, he maintained his incredible zest for life, as evidenced by the fact that just last week he was riding his bicycle, as he has for so many years. Some of you know Stuart was Ed's brother-in-law, I'll explain in a moment, married to his sister Nancy. Stuart and Ed worked closely for nearly 50 years. They had a shared passion to use the radio station and other media assets they acquire to make a positive impact in the cities across America. That passion remains just as strong today as it did when they launched Salem's first Christian teaching and talk radio station in Oxnard, California, some 50 years ago. Although Stewart had passed, that same passion and desire live on. It is the legacy of the Epperson family, as it uh, will be uh, of the, Ad, uh, the Atzinger family. Ed said to me at today, Stuart will be greatly missed by many. I will miss him, but I take comfort in realizing that he is already receiving his reward for a life well lived a life that personifies the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Well, Stu Epperson was the co-founder and chairman emeritus of Salem Media Group, which is what KPDQ is a member of. He died leaving behind an incredible legacy of service in the broadcasting field. The Christian media pioneer was 86 years old. Stu and his brother-in-law, Edward Adsinger, They founded what was originally called Salem Communications back in 1986. They expanded its influence with Christian and politically conservative news talks, formatted radio stations and media platforms all across the nation. As a longtime leader in Christian radio, Stu Epperson ministered to millions. He was also a former member of the board of directors of the National Religious Broadcasters Association. For over a decade, Epperson served as the National Radio Broadcast Executive Committee and Board of Directors and was a member of the NRB President's Council for many years. Stu Epperson also played a key role in the establishment of the NRB TV and served for 17 years as the chairman. In 2009, he was inducted into the National Radio Broadcast Hall of Fame. Stu's contribution to the field of Christian broadcasting cannot be overstated. That's a quote from Troy Miller, who is the National Radio Broadcast president and CEO. He touched countless lives with his unwavering commitment to Christian communications and excellence and using the airwaves to advance the truth. We extend our heartfelt condolences to his loved ones and the Salem Media family at this time. And again, KPDQ is a member of that family. In 2005, 
Time magazine named him one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Tributes poured in on social media, honoring his work as a trailblazer in the industry. Blaze TV host Steve Deuce, he tweeted, an absolute giant in Christian conservative broadcasting, even more so a true gentleman. He's one of those that I will be eternally grateful for in my career. He even wrote a letter of recommendation for the company he founded to take a chance on me and gave me a shot in national syndication. Big Stu was at as first class as it gets. He lived a long and wonderful life, end quote. Anyone lucky enough to know Stu received a great blessing, tweeted media personality Mike Gallagher. Stewart definitely fought the good fight and did it well. Praising God for the life and legacy of Mr. Stu Epperson Sr., wrote another user. Well, Stu Epperson devoted himself to numerous charitable and humanitarian endeavors through the Winston-Salem Rescue Mission, Salem Pregnancy Care Center, the Christian Association of Youth Mentoring, and other ministries. Salem Media Group Executive Chairman Ed Adziger, his brother-in-law, shared, Stuart will be greatly missed by many. I will miss him, but I take comfort in realizing that he is already receiving his reward for a life well-lived, a life that personifies the words of the Apostle Paul. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Stu Epperson is survived by his wife, Nancy, and their four children, daughters, Christy, Karen, and Kathy, and their son, Stuart Jr., and by 21 grandchildren, one great-grandchild, and two more on the way, as well as his sister, Mary Lee King. Epperson was so successful in broadcasting that Time Magazine named him one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals. He was raised on a tobacco farm in Ararat, Virginia, just north of this Surrey County line, and was introduced to radio at an early age. His father had founded stations in Virginia, and his brother Ralph had started one in Mount uh, Airy. Epperson uh, worked in his brother's station and decided to go to college to learn the business, and learn it he did. A few colleges showed interest in Epperson's basketball uh, potential. He was a very tall and lanky fellow, but he decided to go to Bob Jones University, a conservative Christian college in Greenville, South Carolina, where he ultimately earned a master's degree in broadcasting. He brought his first radio station, or rather bought his first radio station back in 1961 in Roanoke, Virginia. In 1963, he married his wife, Nancy, whom he had met at Bob Jones University. The following year, they moved to Winston-Salem, where Epperson bought and operated WKBX, which he ran as a country and western station. He sold it in 1976. He formed Salem Media Inc. with Ed Atzinger in 1986. The company owned stations from New York to California, focusing on a Christian inspirational format featuring music, Bible teaching, and talk. Among those purchases, KPDQ. In addition to his radio work, he also helped start Winston-Salem Rescue Mission in the late 60s. He decided to get into the race for Congress just two days before the filing deadline in 1984. He was an unlikely candidate, having skeptics uh, even within his own party. Some feared his appeal would be limited to fellow born-again Christians. He sometimes appeared awkward in his uh, lanky six-foot-five frame. He was going up against a five-term incumbent, and he had no campaign experience. He'd been a registered Republican since 1968, but wasn't involved with party politics until he ran. I'm a political novice if there ever was one, he said at the time, but he was a firm believer that Ronald Reagan had put America back on the right track, and he yearned to provide conservative leadership that he felt was both morally and fiscally sound. 
The traditional family as we know it is at the heart of what made this country great, he said, in launching his campaign back in February of 1984. These values have been eroding, but I think we are getting them back again. He eventually won over many of those skeptics and made a convincing run for office, even sharing a stage with then-Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush during a campaign visit to Wake Forest University. Well, there's a lot to be said about this accomplished man, but perhaps the most significant thing is that he has entered into his war, his reward, a man of faith. He used his considerable talent, his considerable uh, skills and influence for the sake of the gospel. He will certainly be missed by the Salem Media Group, the family of stations and other media outlets guided uh, by he and his brother-in-law. And I look forward to seeing him again, that six foot five, tall and lanky, rather awkward man in the presence of the king he served so well. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.